Our world is a very nasty place full of enemies. Christians don't want to be sheltered and sentimentalist, hiding from the reality of this grim, dark world. At the same time, our victorious Lord does call us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. How can fantastical stories about heroes versus villains help us train to show love to our enemies, even if we still must fight them? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world. We are all friends here, no enemies to be seen. And I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven. I also helped a co-author of the nonfiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parents. And I'm Zachary Russell, and hopefully I'm not the villain of someone else's story. But if so, I hope they're listening now because this is episode 112. How does fiction help us love our enemies even if we must defeat them? Zach, this topic is so personal to me. I literally felt tense writing out some notes for (laughs) this episode, and I realized that it may be personal to many people in our audience as well. Uh, There's lots of political issues, cultural issues going on in the news just in the past week or so, especially while I was gone, uh, first to my younger sister's wedding. Yeah, again, they get all over everything. You just step in all that stuff, you track it in. You can't take your shoes off of the door and prevent it. It's going to get onto your nice new rugs. I went to my younger sister's wedding a couple of weeks ago. And then, of course, I went to the Teach Them Diligently conference in Pigeon Forge uh, just this uh, last weekend, weekend before last. And I'll have more to say about that in a moment. Lots of news broke while I was gone. And maybe it was better that I had less access to the socials to start commenting about everything, as is the temptation. But that's not what this episode is about. Uh, This episode is about the general idea of enemies, how Christians are supposed to love them, because that is a non-negotiable, and yet what forms that love will take in our very complicated world. And I think that stories, uh, first, of course, starting with the true gospel, uh, and then secondarily, stories that we enjoy, about good guys fighting bad guys, those can really help us work through some of these issues, even if we don't always come to the same answers. Stephen, it's really good to have you back. course it was fun to have my lovely wife on the show but it is fun to be back in the studio with you yes there has been a lot of things that uh, if you're online you've seen them all and not just the you know news headlines but a lot of uh, christian twitter uh, debates uh, have been happening so yeah we're gonna get get into that but not we're not gonna be on the nose with a lot of the stuff we're we're gonna be talking about sort of the more foundational things going on here. We will just be on the nose about us trying not to be on the nose, but I will give an on the nose promotion for our next appearance. Uh, I'm next going to the Florida Parent Educators Association in the last weekend of may may twenty twenty two that is may twenty sixth through the twenty eighth I was there at this event uh, last year that was in Orlando at the Rosen Shingle Creek Resort with the Realm Makers Bookstore. I get to sell the pop culture parent and talk about Lorehaven, talk about magic and stories, talk about Christian-made fantasy uniquely. But I won't be the only one. Uh, We also have many other amazing guests here. Uh, Chief among those, perhaps, would be the co-creator of Veggie Tales and also the author of the popular Dead Sea Squirrels series of middle-grade fantasy, Mike Naraki. He'll be there with uh, Scott and Rebecca P. Miner, the owners of the Realm Makers Bookstore. We're also joined by novelists uh, Tim Shoemaker. James R. Hannibal is back. Uh, I already mentioned uh, Rebecca P. Miner, an author in her own right. Catherine Jones-Payne will be there. Uh, She writes Mermaids and Other Fantasy and is getting into some uh, middle-grade fare as well, as well as novelists uh, Kristen Stiefel and Emily Jeffries. And lastly, of course, myself, uh, representing Lorehaven, 
find more information at our website. We'll have a news post up there shortly. And then in just a moment, I'll also talk about uh, what went on at the uh, previous event uh, going on at Pigeon Forge, the Teach Them Diligently conference. First off, while we're pitching stuff, we got our official first sponsor for this episode, which is the Realmakers Writers Conference. I'll try to get through this one quickly, but once again, it is the conference for Christian authors of fantasy and sci-fi and beyond. There's a real-life conference in Atlantic City, New Jersey, the 10th Realmakers Conference from July 21st through the 23rd of 2022. Are you excited to take the next step in your speculative fiction journey? You'll want to go then to Realmakers 2022 Annual Writers Conference, both in person in Atlantic City and also live online. So even if you can't travel to that conference this July, you can still watch the teaching in real time because it is live streamed for virtual attendees. Either way, you can connect with other members in the Realm Sphere, a dedicated conference space and online community. Realmakers 2022 is an amazing value because this year each attendee gets access to replays of every class through that Realm Sphere. Whether you attend virtually or live, you can pitch a manuscript to participating agents and editors. Get more information in our show notes for this episode, 112, right there at the top. You can also go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors to learn more about and potentially to register for Realmakers 2022. You know, Stephen, just the title of this episode was really intriguing when we first started talking about this. How can you love people even if you have to defeat them? I think right there that blows open this idea of love as pacifism or just passivity because even love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that right there is an active step that's not just rolling over and just letting your enemies trample you that's taking a step (laughs) i mean you could first of all be praying to god asking for protection and we definitely see that in the book of acts we see them praying for safety of the apostles And of course, at times, Paul asserts his rights. Even Jesus, when he was being chased and they tried to kill him or crown him king, he got away. Loving your enemies, I think, it's a very big topic to explore because there's a very reductionist, simplistic way, I think, that a lot of people talk about it. So this is going to be an interesting way to really explore it. It will be. I do have a concessions aplenty. Uh, we had the concession stand, I think, closed down for the last several episodes because they were a little more straightforward. Uh, as you've no doubt been able to tell, gentle listener, this one will be a little bit more complex, and that is by design. I also don't mind hinting at the fact that uh, there's probably a bit of a darker ending for this episode. Uh, of course, we will find some redemptive light in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, but by the end, uh, it could get a little uh, thick in here. The air may get a little bit heavy. So I just want you to be aware uh, that these are complicated issues. Uh, And I also mentioned at the top that they can be very personal issues. And although I don't have this kind of personal experience, I'm about to mention lots of y'all do. And it is the image I have in mind when you're talking about the tough scenarios of love your enemies. Because some Christians have decided, uh, as you mentioned, Zach, that love means enablement. And let's say you have uh, an elder or a pastor, leader of some kind, uh, someone with spiritual influence in your church who becomes an enemy through acts of abuse or harassment or embezzlement or just being an all-around cad. Some people would say, well, you've got to put a good face on the church. Uh, the world is watching. We need to show them you know, how loving we are and how peaceful we are. So just forgive that abusive person and all should be well. That's how you're going to show them love. I cannot disagree more strongly with that approach. An abusive person needs to be loved by exposing the abuse and letting the consequences happen and in some sense punishing or disciplining that person in order to help save his soul. 
that kind of goes back to it's not a case of abuse, but in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul is talking about scandal in the church, and he's saying, no, no, you need to discipline this person. Uh, this is, in a way, an act of love. Uh, you, it's tough love, uh, but it's not that kind of pacifistic love that you mentioned, Zach. And you can't take what works for one scenario and apply it to everywhere else. And I think Christians sometimes, just because we're really busy or because we lack imagination or we lack experience or, frankly, we just lack wisdom, We'd like just to have a one-size-fits-all template. Love your enemies means just let them get away with it. After all, the enemy needs Jesus, and you don't want to get in the way of him accepting Jesus sometime by overreacting to his evil, now do you? Yeah, I I think it's really good to define this term, love love your enemies, because a lot of what you just described there is people just trying to preserve the public image and sweep everything under the rug so we look good to the world. And I, I, we'll, we'll talk about this term public witness in a little bit, but I think we really have to grapple with the fact that what a lot of people mean is public image. You know, it, it's how you appear. And this is exactly what Jesus tackled all the time with the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs who cleaned the outside of the cup, but didn't deal with the inside. I, I think to really love people takes a lot of inner work and it takes a lot of house cleaning in our own hearts. I, again, it, it's just not as simplistic as uh, a lot of people would have you believe. All right, I'm going to open the lid for the concession stand. I think there's some nice, tasty treats in there. Um, Probably a couple dozen, actually. So I'm going to try to scarf these down as quickly as possible for this episode. Uh, These concessions are hot. We haven't snacked from here in some time. We'll note that Zach and I are building our discussion off of two previous episodes. Uh, Last fall, for example, we had episode 88. And then just this past spring, we had episode 103. 103 was more about how Christians can deal with our fights with one another in love. This one is a bit different because uh, generally we're talking about people who are not Christians and who actively wish us harm. I think that's really important here. This isn't a misunderstanding between bros and the family of God. Uh, This is a case of someone who's actively trying to persecute you or who is truly evil, who is truly a villain. And that's why we're approaching this from the perspective of fiction. We're talking about villains here, not side characters with whom we are in conflict. And yes, uh, this topic, as I mentioned, touches on some now current debates among Christians, including but not limited to the pro-life versus abortion debate. And Zach already mentioned some of this even more nichier uh, intra-Christian, intra-church, or at least intra-evangelical debate about winsomeness. Like, how, how are we to act towards our enemies? Do we call them names? Do we yell at them? Uh, do we get out the acidic tongues? Well, Scripture has some warnings about the tongue, but sometimes you need some fierce rhetoric in order to love someone. Is this not true in our personal lives as well as maybe our cultural engagement? How do we avoid the temptations there? These are big, complicated issues, but I think under those issues may lie the bigger question about how we are to love our enemies. As we mentioned, often we might assume, well, we love our enemies by giving them the gospel. That's the most important, most loving thing a Christian can do, right? But from there, we may also assume Well, in order to get that person, that enemy, the gospel, we need to remove any obstacles, uh, including this preoccupation Christians have with politics or cultural conflicts, and maybe this issue that people have when they say, you Christians, you have a bad tone. I I don't like your tone. You're arrogant. Uh, You're self-righteous. You worship the idol of politics. So why can't you just be more righteous the way that I define it? So says the enemy. And sometimes the Christians get distracted by that response. For my part, I I actually step back from all of that and I ask, are we not maybe overemphasizing 
the role of the Christian as missionary. And this is really dangerous. And uh, I invite any pushback from you all and from you, Zach, because sometimes I read, especially from pastors who do have this more overtly missional job, that is their job, that's the hat they have on. And then they start to assume that maybe every Christian has that hat. Now, every Christian, every single one is a missionary where they are. That is our job. That is absolutely our job. But as we pointed out in previous episodes of this podcast and at Lorehaven, if you assume that your only job is to evangelize the lost or to be a public witness in a way that'll lead them to Jesus, then that's going to make for bad stories. Uh, You're not going to do your job if you're trying to make a story, if all you're trying to do is get the reader saved. Uh, There's other responsibilities that the creator of a story has reflecting reality, making a great plot, making genuine surprises having flawed but also heroic, heroic characters. Uh, This is the job of the novelist. And if you're just trying to get someone saved, then you're not writing a novel, you're writing a tract (laughs) disguised as a novel. Similarly, I think Christians have more jobs when we are engaging our world than just trying to evangelize people. We're also creators, we're cultivators of the world, and we are citizens of our nations, of our cities. We have other hats that we wear besides just the evangelist. I think if we minimize to the Great Commission, if we minimize our job as, okay, we're just supposed to spread Jesus to the world, everything else a distraction, then we're going to ignore other truths, other callings that God has told us about in Scripture. And we have a whole Old Testament plus the wisdom literature uh, about these issues, the wisdom literature being part of the Old Testament, uh, which is less preoccupied with trying to get people saved or even overt discipleship. But the book of Proverbs is all about just general principles of wisdom. The fool generally does this. The wise generally does this. Uh, You've got to follow the examples there in Proverbs, not just the examples of the apostles. All of Scripture reminds us that we have many hats to wear. These things are complicated. But my biggest concession, and despite this uh, overly long introduction, that is another article or podcast about the role of Christian vocation, what hats we wear, how we act as citizens, all that stuff. That's more the real world Jesus called us to serve type stuff and less about the uh, fantastical worlds that uh, Fantastical Truth explores. Here we do emphasize fiction, and that's why the bulk of our episode, we're actually going to take a look at three fictional heroes who had to love their enemies, yet also fight their enemies, and at least two out of three cases, defeat their enemies. And for each of these fictional heroes, we're going to ask, how can a hero save his people, yet also save his enemy? Can he save both That's the conflict behind a lot of stories, and it makes things complicated, both in the fictional worlds and in the real world. Okay, so to go back to one of the big things you talked about, uh, Christians have more jobs in evangelism. So maybe pushback, but maybe just elaborating on that. Well, I mean, there are a lot of people for whom that is their job. Uh, For me, that's actually my main job. I, I don't talk about this whole lot on the podcast, but my day job is in campus ministry. Um, And as such, there are a lot of topics I refrain personally from talking about. Uh, Now, this is mostly in groups or in social media. Um, It's not because I don't have opinions on those topics, but because uh, basically those opinions matter less to me than the main job I'm trying to do. It doesn't mean I'm being squishy on these topics or trying to placate people, uh, because in one-on-one situations, I'll lay out everything I think about a certain topic. But I think the the mistake that a lot of vocational ministers make is by assuming everyone else lives that way. It is a unique way to live. In, in vocational ministry, first of all, it, it's a life of sacrifice in a lot of ways, okay? Uh, it's not necessarily a vow of poverty, but it's uh, you don't really get rich unless you're a, I guess, prosperity 
preacher with a mega church. But for the most part, it's a very humble life. And there are a lot of things that we lay on the altar of missions. I mean, first of all, just people that move overseas or, or live in very unusual places. And, and one of the things that I lay down personally is pontificating about a lot of things that I would otherwise want to talk about. But again, that, that is how I live. I, I think the mistake is when ministers and missionaries think that everyone else needs to live that way too, uh, because we aren't simply called to preach the gospel. We are called to make disciples. And Jesus said, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. As simple as the gospel is, and it is simple, it's a gospel of grace. The Christian life comes with many implications uh, because scripture says you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And I, I think the mistake oftentimes is, well, we just need to win them to Christ and leave them there. It's all about winning them to Christ. And that's like an end rather than a means to an end. And, and we talk about in my job, we, we win, not only win them to Christ, but we build them in their faith. And then we send them out into the world. And most of the people that go through a, like a, camp, a campus ministry program, they're not going to go into full-time ministry. They're going to go into the marketplace. They're going to go into the world, not of the world, but being in the world. A, a lot of times what's missing is just a fully developed plan for how people are to interact with the world in a non-vocational ministry way. Zach, I think that's a really important qualifier. I, I think I've had some struggles recently because I, I must admit I have seen some uh, notable Christian pastor authors, uh, at least on social media, where you know messaging can get mixed up and you don't have the space or time to say what you would really need to say. Nobody can write a book every time on this topic. So I want to respect those folks' uh, ministry and want to respect the limitations of their experience and just the limitations of their vocation. But I also believe that if you're going to address this issue at all, if you're going to address this issue, uh, the tough questions that Christians have about, wait a minute, like you say I'm supposed to go in the world and evangelize, like, well, the world is literally trying to take away my income with cancel culture, uh, or they're trying to punish me in some way. Like, if this is not persecution, then what is it? Because it kind of feels like persecution. What do I do, pastor? And it seems like sometimes at least some of the big pastors are, are just saying, well, well, don't worry about that. You know, first, a lot of that stuff is overblown. You're just you're just listening to too much AM radio. It's not so bad out there. The enemy's not really that bad. Uh, or there's kind of this assumption that if you fall on hard times, then something will just happen, uh, that you'll be able to live off of the nonprofit fund. I'm not sure. It, it, it seems sometimes as if, like you said, Zach, there's an assumption that everyone lives that way. But we don't, you know, and I'm not even in that place, really. Um, our area is very culturally conservative. I have a few uh, revenue sources uh, that would keep us afloat. So nobody's demanding that I put pronouns in my emails, but that is something that many Christians are dealing with. How do you love that kind of enemy? Don't you also have to defeat that enemy? And you mentioned the Apostle Paul earlier, Zach, the Apostle Paul, who in the book of Acts, when he was going to be beaten unjustly, relied on his rights as a Roman citizen. So the Apostle Paul knew who he was, not just a missionary. This goes to your point, Zach. The Apostle Paul is absolutely a full-time set-apart missionary. That was his job. But he was also a tent maker. He used tent making to support his job as a missionary. And I'm guessing it doesn't say in the book of Acts. Yeah, it doesn't say in the book of the Acts, uh, but the Apostle Paul, I would like to think, made some really good high-quality tents. 
Uh, he didn't just put John three sixteen on there, especially because the <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the Gospel of John probably wasn't uh, fully written yet. Uh, if he, if it had been written though, the Apostle Paul couldn't just put John three sixteen on a tent and boom, it's a Christian tent. He needs to make a high quality tent. Uh, he needed to put on his tent maker hat, not just his missionary hat. And then when he was being beaten, it was perfectly fine for him to put on his citizenship hat. Like, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. You have no right as a local authority to do this to me without trial or without cause. That's the questions that Christians are asking now. How do you love your enemy if your enemy is beating you? Uh, do you just uh, turn the other cheek and let the assault go on? Uh, do you enable the act of unrighteousness? Is that truly loving to your enemy uh, as well as loving to family members and other Christians who don't need to see you get persecuted unrighteously if you have a way out? Anyway, big, big topics here. And I'm, I'm just I'm not seeing those engaged with uh, at the uh, at least the the some of the popular church influencer level, uh, they seem actively disinterested in these topics if they admit yeah. that they are serious at all. And so we turn to either, you know, <laughs> cultural uh, conservative resources, which have a lot of flaws and idols in them, or we turn to stories, for example. So that's what we're about to do. Yeah, well, I just want to say even this uh, step of love your enemy by giving him the gospel, that also assumes taking an active step and not being a cultural pacifist. Amen. And so I, I think, uh, I think it's fair to say that neither Steve and I are cultural pacifists. Now we, we th- th- this is apart from the issue of wars and militaries and whatever, but, uh, I, I think what we're speaking against is cultural pacifism and, j- and just kind of being a doormat Christian. No way. <laughs> like, but there are different ways to respond to these things. And so let's, uh, let's get into that. Absolutely. We, we don't want to be cultural mercenaries either, uh, but there are rules of engagement in a good military if we are to rely oh so frighteningly on the martial metaphor, Zach. But again, we have good company. The Apostle Paul and other apostles don't mind some martial metaphors. It is metaphor at this point because we are talking about acts of power, meaning just acts of influence. Anyone who seeks to influence the culture in a sense will be involved in some kind of cultural conflict because conflict is a necessary part of story. You cannot have a good story without conflict. And some of the best stories are based on wars, including our first example here, Star Wars. You put it right in the title. It's a war among the stars. There are multiple wars among the stars. And our first matchup here in this example of how we are to love our enemies, even if we're trying to defeat them, is Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader in the original Star Wars trilogy. The only one that matters. It's the only one that matters, apart from <laughs> The Mandalorian and any yes, of that uh, other yes. good stuff that you won't get to see because you canceled Disney Plus like a good Christian, right? <laughs> <laughs> There's still good stuff uh, in uh, in uh, story makers that are now been absorbed uh, by the behemoth mouse, uh, Disney, and one of those is certainly the Star Wars, at least the original trilogy. And for this, I'm actually going to quote at length uh, and try to do some character voices and everything from an older article I wrote, which really forms the inspiration for this whole topic. It was an article I wrote in summer 2017 at Christ and Pop Culture called Don't Embrace the Power of the Dark Side. I think, it, I mean, look at the year there, Americans. Like, you know what was going on in 2017, but I really tried to write this article to be timeless. And this kind of resets up the entire scenario from uh, Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. Here's what I wrote, quote, Outside the Galactic Empire's new battle station, a cosmic battle rages between good and evil. Inside this station, Jedi Knight Luke Skywalker fights an equally epic personal battle. His own lost father, the evil Darth Vader, prowls in the dark, seeking to devour his son. 
give yourself to the dark side. Vader urges. It is the only way you can save your friends. My Darth Vader sounds a little bit more like uh, Optimus Prime. Anyway, (laughs) already Luke has struggled to resist the dark side of the Force, the magic-like natural law of Star Wars that can be used for good or evil. Luke has been warned against corruption, even as he hopes to redeem his father who fell to the dark side a long time ago. Yes, Luke has fought many other foes out of duty, but he won't fight his father out of anger and hate. Then Vader uses the Force to detect Luke's thoughts. So you have a twin sister, the Dark Lord taunts. Your feelings have now betrayed her, too. Obi-Wan was wise to hide her from me. Now his failure is complete. If you will not turn to the dark side, then perhaps she will. At that, Luke flies into a force-powered wrath. Never! And Mark Hamill's performance marks one of the greatest moments in all of the Star Wars saga. Finally, the two enemies sneaking and saber play is over. Instead, Luke advances and screams and slashes at his father over and over and over. At last, Vader is down. Luke doesn't let up. His lightsaber severs Vader's cybernetic hand. Luke advances victorious, ready to end his personal enemy. Seeing this, the Galactic Emperor approaches and cackles at Luke. Good, your hate has made you powerful. Now fulfill your destiny and take your father's place at my side. But Luke is stilled. Without flashback or monologue, he merely gazes at his own right hand. Viewers of the previous Star Wars film, The Empire Strikes Back, know exactly what this gaze means. When Luke first fought Vader and learned of their connection, Vader saber-sliced his own son's hand. Luke now realizes what the film's official script confirms. This is what the official script says. Luke looked at his father's mechanical hand, then to his own mechanical black-gloved hand, and realizes how much he is becoming like his father. Luke refuses to embrace the power of the dark side. He throws away his Jedi weapon. Never, Luke repeats. I'll never turn to the dark side. You've failed, your highness. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. End quote. I love that scene. That's peak Star Wars to me, Zach. I I didn't grow up with it. I think I literally watched this entire thing in the late 2000s, which I view as a blessing because I got to experience this story uh, with an adult brain uh, at a time when I really needed some on-screen heroes to teach me about how to love my enemies, even if I'm trying to defeat them. Yeah, this whole scene meant a lot to me. I saw it when I was very young. I I probably play acted that a whole bunch of times because I had the toy lightsabers and everything growing up. Um, and to, by the way, that, that's the second lightsaber that Luke lost in the original trilogy that, uh, they all mysteriously reappeared in the Disney sequels, but we won't get into that. Although I, I saw a great joke on Twitter today from a author I follow, RM Huffman. He said, what, what do George Lucas and, uh, Ryan Johnson have in common? They both made a star Wars movie without watching star Wars first. <laughs> oh, well, I guess, so, I guess the, yes. the, the, the sabers came back cause the force made him do it or something. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow Palpatine returned. Yes, somehow everything <laughs> somehow. happened. Yeah, <laughs> Palpatine's behind it all. <laughs> yes, um, but no, th- this is a great scene. Probably my favorite moment in that scene is where uh, Luke charges at Vader, and Vader's breath kind of catches it. You know, I can't do it, but he, he he's just shocked to see yes. Luke, and that that is the turning point, uh, the first turning point of this whole story, of this whole saga where Luke is becoming the dark side and, and Vader's kind of like, uh Oh, what did I do? Um, but yes, Luke then has that second turning point where he realizes he's, 
he's becoming like the person he's trying to defeat. And that's, that's not the way to go. Well, it's important, I think, to recognize that deep down, we somehow know maybe we're being manipulated by the story. But I think as fans of Star Wars, we somehow know that Luke losing control like that and then just beating his father without any mercy at all, without honor. We somehow know that that's the dark side. The story has done a good job with its own, you know, false, doesn't exist, natural law, magic slash mystical system of clarifying that anger and hate and lack of discipline and all of this, that counts toward the dark side. And the dark side is bad. It's dark. It's immoral. It's unrighteousness. You don't want to go there. Whereas discipline and mercy and fighting with honor, that's the important thing there. It's not no fighting. The Jedi are not pacifists. But there is a more honorable means of combat. And Luke, we suspect when we're watching that scene, deep down we feel it, even if we don't know it. We know that Luke is right to fight the Emperor. He is right to fight Darth Vader. Although we see him uh, jumping the gun and rushing off to Cloud City in the past film before Yoda, his trainer, believes that he's ready to confront his father or confront uh, Lord Vader. He doesn't know he's his father yet, but presumably Yoda does. We just know that somehow there's a right way to fight and there's a wrong way to fight. And it's not that not fighting is right or and uh, fighting is wrong. Uh, Star Wars is more nuanced than that. Uh, there's kind of a just war theory there. And I think it goes back to Luke's jobs, so the hats that he has to wear. We were talking earlier about how many hats Christians have to wear. We do wear the evangelism hat. That's absolutely our job to be missionaries wherever the, uh, God has placed us. For Luke Skywalker, though, what, what hats does he wear? Well, he's a rebel. Uh, he is part of the rebellion, which is in the world of Star Wars, an overall righteous cause. You know, not perfect, not perfectly righteous, but uh, you know, better than the Empire for certain. So Luke is a soldier. That's his job. Uh, he is a brother uh, to Leia, his twin sister. And he's also the son of Anakin Skywalker. Uh, that means that Luke has many different jobs, many responsibilities he must fulfill. As a rebel, as a soldier, he must fight for a righteous cause that could save billions of lives across the galaxy and resist and overthrow tyranny. Because the Empire is uniformly the bad guys. I don't care what your fan theory is, the Empire is the bad guys. But Luke also wears the brother hat. And in this case, I think that's really important. And uh, I, I mean, I don't hang out with a lot of Star Wars fans, but I think it's something we would need to discuss that Luke's, Luke hears his enemy threaten the honor and life of his sister. He has a familiar commitment there. Uh, if he doesn't do something to Darth Vader, whether it's motivated, motivated by the light or dark side, Vader's going to come after Princess Leia. And that is not cool. You don't attack a man's mother. You don't attack his sister. Uh, that is an absolute forbidden move by your enemy. Uh, Luke is also, however, a son. As we heard earlier, he wants to connect with his father and maybe even redeem him. He, he believes he can save Lord Vader. He believes that Vader may still have some good in him. And, you know, on the way up to the second Death Star, they're having some conversations. They're not fighting each other. You know, they're, they're starting to kind of rebuild an, an absent relationship there. So all of those callings together in one person, this is complicated. Luke has to do all these jobs at once. But there's one other job. It's very important here that first Luke identifies as a Jedi, uh, the member of this mystic order of warrior knights, space wizards. He's a hero. He is committed to uphold the virtues of the light side of the force. And in this unseen morality, we know that Luke will be wrong to use the dark side, even if it's for good reasons, to save his sister, to fight for the rebellion, 
uh, or even in order to save his father. Don't use the dark side of the forest. You can't do that. It's not just about being winsome or not. It's wrong to lose control and go over to the dark side. All these together set the inner and outer conflicts of the whole Star Wars story and this particular scene. How can Luke fulfill all of these conflicting jobs? Is there any way to do it? So it's a lot more interesting then than just who's more powerful or, you know, who would win in a fight, Luke Skywalker or Darth Vader, you know, who trained harder, who had the, who has the, uh, the greater willpower. Uh, there's many entangling virtues and callings in here. And I think that's why this is a great example for Christians to think about how we also have many different entangling motives and callings all from God, even as our primary identity is not Jedi Knights, but as a representative of Christ. Yeah. What I love about Star Wars is that it's on the surface about Luke defeating Darth Vader or defeating the Emperor, but what he's really defeating is the dark side itself. Like that was the true enemy all along. It's it's the inner enemy of the dark side. It's it's the villain inside of himself. All kinds of parallels you can make there about the Christian life and resisting the power of the devil <laughs> within you. It has to be said that, okay, it, eventually the Emperor is killed. The Death Star is blown up. There's lots of explosions. It is Star Wars. <laughs> People die Star, in the Star yeah. Wars as in right. regular Earth Wars. <laughs> yes. But, you know, that, that moment where Luke says to the Emperor, I'll never join the Dark Side on, you know, you failed. That, that really is, I mean, you could almost just end the story right there because that is the climax of his saga that he's not going to become like the person he's trying to defeat. And yes, it is kind of amazing that Darth Vader, you know, Anakin does basically repent of the dark side. I never felt like growing up that was a cheat, but it does happen right. kind of fast. You always wonder, like, uh, I wonder how he came to that point. But that's what I love about that story is that uh, now, now again, he he also dies right after that. So there again he's defeated and that's in an earthly sense in a physical sense but it is significant that that anakin comes back also from the dark side i love that about the story it it gives you hope right because even the apostle paul was a basically a servant of the dark side persecuting christians throwing them in jail overseeing stephen's uh, martyrdom and then you know he has a um a, a supernatural encounter and he uh, is delivered from his own dark side. And so it, it's such a great story to the Christian because we believe that no one is beyond the grace of God. And so, um, and sometimes it takes a drastic circumstance to bring someone into the kingdom, but we serve a great God. Yeah. In real life, it's a lot more complicated. Even when we have uh, what I would say here is actually the best possible outcome of Luke's inner and outer battles. Uh, in a sense, Luke gets an altogether happy ending, uh, not just the bad guys losing because of explosions, but Luke finds a way to save his people, uh, the whole galaxy uh, from the Empire. Uh, at least if you if you end the story here with all the parties on the on the moon of Endor and you know, around the galaxy and the, uh, yep, the special man. editions and all of that. Yes, <laughs> it is an altogether happy ending for them, for the people Luke is trying to save. But I think for us as an audience, we feel satisfied by this ending because Luke does succeed in his quest to help in the redemption of Darth Vader, Anakin Skywalker. But we also, as you mentioned, Zach, see that Anakin does suffer a consequence. You know, he 
He picks up the emperor. He throws him down the, uh, the infinite death star shaft and there's blue lightning and all of that. But Vader himself is also wounded and dies shortly afterwards. So we feel both the satisfaction of that redemption, uh, but also I, I think it would have rang a little hollow if Vader had then just lived after that and then appeared <laughs> in all the sequels. Uh, he's dancing with all the Ewoks. And- <laughs> yeah. Because then you wait a minute, like this, this man, you know, whatever his motives, whatever his tragic backstory, you know, the, the kid formerly known as Annie has caused absolute devastation to the galaxy. He has ruled over and enabled tyranny and killed many, many, many people and aliens and we feel that he needs to pay for that somehow even as he's being redeemed and so he gets that's true he gets his poetic death and and that kind of um that kind of repeats in our next example here example number two i think that we we feel that as christians that that is satisfying because we know that for example the thief on the cross he repents at the last minute but he also understands that he's done terrible things and jesus promises that the thief on the cross will see christ today in paradise but he still Uh, dies he still (laughs) dies yeah there's still a consequence there and that's really that's the same for everybody though you know we are redeemed uh we are uh set free from the bondage of eternal decay a suffering in hell uh, if we are in christ but we also must die uh whether it's you know the the poetic uh, death of a villain uh, or you know, even some Christians who've converted in prison, like the thief on the cross, converted on the cross, need to be uh, or go through execution process, you know, or they stay in prison for life. Uh, so we feel on the earthly level that under uh, the, the law of the story or the law of civil justice, that they are receiving the consequence. And so they should. We know that they will not only go to heaven, but they will experience that future resurrection and they will reign as a king or a queen on the new heavens and new earth. So as a Christian, I find that satisfying in all those different ways, but that's not what we see in every single story of a hero who needs to love his enemy, but also defeat his enemy. But let's now go to a more complicated story of a hero versus a villain, and uh, more complicated because it's in a superhero movie that some people still laugh at, and yeah, there's some goofy moments there for sure. Even the director, Sam Raimi, lately of Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, uh, he himself has said that he didn't like Spider-Man 3 nearly as much as he wanted to. He thought there were ways he could improve on it. But one of the best parts of this movie from 2007 is the battle between Peter Parker versus Venom. Now, this is not the uh, solo movie Venom. Uh, This is the original version as portrayed by Topher Grace, who's a photographer, Eddie Brock, a rival to Peter Parker. I really like this storyline, and like many fans, I wish there had been more of it uh, because uh, Eddie is kind of this uh, this foil for Peter Parker. And well, let's get into just the story real quick. It won't be as long a setup as for Star Wars, even though this is a more complicated story. By the end, you might think, "Oh, this is this is sort of like you know uh, Peter Parker trying to save Darth Vader." Well, not so much. It's a little different. Uh, this one gets a shorter setup. Uh, Peter Parker has similar battles uh, with the man who really did help kill his uncle, uh, the Sandman. Uh, that battle is going on, and some people think that plotline could have been improved on. But I'm, I'm more interested in this battle with him and Eddie Brock, the rival photographer for the Daily Bugle. Uh, he is a fraud. Uh, he is doctoring photos of Spider-Man. Eventually, Peter Parker very rudely Uh, exposes him and gets him thrown out. And there's a famous scene there, which I still really like, where Eddie Brock begs Peter Parker for a break. Like, come on, man. Like, you know, can't you just let a working fella, you know, get this one by? Peter Parker grabs him by the shirt collar and he says, quote, 
if you want forgiveness, get religion. End quote. It is so over the top. It's almost Zack Snyder over the top <laughs> with the <laughs> spiritual scene there, but it's not nearly as over the top as what Peter does later when he gets religion. Um, for those who don't remember the story, uh, there's this uh, black symbiote that comes from outer space, uh, this, this animated goo that latches onto uh, Peter's Spider-Man suit, turns it dark, uh, and it amplifies Peter's aggression. Uh, he's more powerful as Spider-Man. He has greater endurance, but he also has uh, lashes of anger. And we see this dark side literally, uh, not just when Peter is Spider-Man, but when he is Peter Parker, uh, we then see not Peter's dark side, but his dork side. And that's where you yeah. get all the memes, you know, the, uh, the, the Peter Parker pelvic thrust in front of the store. And he's, you know, finger gunning girls in the street and they're all scowling at him rightfully so because he's an idiot. And that's the point of that scene, by the way, not just to be goofy, but the show that evil is not just evil, but it also makes you an absolute idiot. Uh, <laughs> and then it gets worse uh, because uh, there's this whole scene where Peter's showing off with this other girl in a nightclub to try to make Mary Jane feel jealous. And then he actually ends up striking her. He's emotionally abusing her. And then he physically abuses her. And it's the yeah, first time you've shocking. ever seen him behave that way. I, I wrote an article about how much I love the, the, the Spider-Man trilogy at uh, Lorehaven. You can check that out. Link in the show notes. He's always been respectful to Mary Jane, more respectful than even the story, which tends to objectify her a lot and turn her into this kind of female MacGuffin for him to get. But here he, he actually hits her and it's horrible. And the story just stops absolutely cold. And you realize that that one strike of a would-be hero against a woman is perhaps, perhaps the unforgivable sin. And I really like that it shows this. Um, I, I literally, not that I would have ever been tempted uh, to do anything like that myself, but it's moments like this that help in the, uh, the prevention against ever feeling like that. A hero does not do that to a woman. And soon after, Peter Parker heads to the church for the, the most over-the-top scene, but I think in a good way. He goes up to the bell tower and he just rips the suit off. And as the church bell sounds, uh, the, uh, the musical clonging of the bell uh, affects the Venom suit. It can't stand this church sound. So it's really See? symbolic. It's awesome. See, all, all you churches, you need to get rid of the uh, giant speakers and, and put the bells back in. Yeah, the giant <laughs> speakers are not going to help a hero who's being afflicted by a not, not the from outer space. Yeah, no, not, not the laser shows. It's That's the bells. not going to drive the skin of evil off of our <laughs> Spider-Man. Uh, the story, of course, doesn't end there, uh, which uh, I imagine uh, annoyed some people because it just kept right on going uh, because... There's someone else in that church, and it's Eddie Brock, who's come to the church and sat in the front row. It's a Catholic church, of course. They look better in movies. And he says, God, you know, I really need you to do me a favor. I want you to kill Peter Parker. And I think as one YouTuber said, that's not how you do church. <laughs> it's not. That's but, not how church works. Well, he not how gets, anything it's works. not how church works. So, so Eddie Brock goes, he hears Peter screaming the bell tower. He, he somehow finds his way in there. He looks up, he says, Parker? And then the drips of the venom start landing on him. And it's a great trailer moment, but it's also a genuinely chilling scene where you see that the skin that Peter has tried to get rid of has now spilled over onto his enemy, whom Peter has also wronged, by the way. He's at fault for that. But now Eddie has become venom. Evil venom, not anti-hero venom, okay? He's uniformly evil. And frankly, I prefer this version. So Eddie is a monster now. He has been sinned against by Peter, but he's also owning his own sin. Uh, there's even a campy moment later where they're fighting where he says, I like being bad. It feels good. 
And on the one hand, okay, that's really campy. That's really simplistic. But on the other hand, I know that people like that exist. Whether or not they have a black alien symbiote uh, stitched to their skin, uh, they have become sociopaths uh, because of the, the victimhood that they've had, but they also become the aggressors. It's the cycle of emotional violence. Uh, Eddie is still responsible for his sin. And at the end, uh, Peter and Venom must fight. But all the time, Peter is recognizing that this is a person whom he has wounded because a big part of the story is Peter understanding that he has committed offenses, not just against Mary Jane, but many other people. And Peter, because he's Spider-Man, isn't trying to kill anyone. You know, I guess that's one way to love your enemy. Don't try to kill your enemy. You know, that's a great starting point. But he's, uh, he's right up until the end in this battle. And I'll mention uh, what happens in a moment. He's trying to save him from this skin of evil uh, constantly because he knows what it feels like. He knows that it will amplify your aggression and that you will lose yourself uh, in this prison of alien flesh. But Eddie wants the suit. He loves the power. And that's the struggle that Peter's up against. And that's the struggle I think that Christians are up against a lot. We're not just up against people who know that they're victims, who know that they need forgiveness, who are just asking questions, and we just need to clear aside all the complicated stuff as Christians to get them the gospel. We just need to love our enemy the obvious way. In this case, the enemy is actively trying to destroy Peter. And sometimes we have enemies who are actively trying to destroy us, not like a supervillain, but trying to destroy our careers our cultural influence, our ability to survive and or thrive in this world. How do you love an enemy like that? So first of all, just in terms of a movie, what I think Spider-Man 3 should have done differently was just get rid of the whole Sandman thing. Because this whole part with the with Venom, uh, with, with you know, or before that when he's Eddie, I, I think that is such a compelling storyline because Eddie is sort of like the mirror image of Peter. Like the branching reality. It's like, he's Peter, but if yeah, you made he's, one... He's, he's a variant, yeah. He's yeah, not like, like Darth if, Vader, who's a family yes. member, you know, an, an antecedent. Uh, he's more on Peter's level. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think their interactions are really interesting. Um, and I think it reveals a lot about the human condition. Peter doesn't love his enemy by rolling over and letting his enemy do whatever he wants. He does oppose him. He does try to stop him because... You know, loving someone means opposing their evil. And there's different ways you can oppose evil. But I think if you enable evil or if you just get out of the way and let evil do run its course, I don't think that's actually loving. It's certainly not loving to the people in your life. Uh, If you, you know, because 1 Corinthians 13 says love always protects. You do have to protect people from evil. And that is also loving the evildoer. Because the more someone is allowed to indulge their evil, the worse they become. This is something I remember C.S. Lewis talking about in Mere Christianity, that after their death, people that face judgment and go to hell, they don't get better. They continue to get worse. Right. Because they, they go they are, on sinning. Mm-hmm. They go on sinning because they have, they have lived their whole entire lives where they're further and further and further hardening their hearts against God we are actually being loving by confronting people in their sin and saying, stop, you know, you you are, you are worsening yourself and you're you're going to make judgment worse for yourself. Uh, But even if you turn around and accept Christ and you repent, you're still going to have a lot of consequences. You know, like we talked about Darth Vader, you still had to face all the consequences of his life. There is a way to fight and oppose evil that is actually very loving towards the one doing the evil. 
Yeah. And, and Peter does show this, by the way. Uh, I didn't even have this in the notes, but I realized that if there is a Darth Vader monologue, you know, like a, a family member uh, whom, uh, who has turned toward the dark side and needs to be redeemed from that, uh, in this movie, it's, it's Harry Osborn, uh, Harry's close friend who's uh, been there from the very beginning of Spider-Man in 2002. Yeah. They have a big fight. It's kind of goofy, but it That's ends right. with Harry Osborn that. taking a grenade to the face. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Harry finds out too late that the reason why Peter had to kill uh, uh, Harry's father, the Green Goblin, is because he was, you know, the Green Goblin, uh, as uh, I think how it should have ended, pointed out, you know, that this information could have been revealed earlier uh, by the manservant in the Osborn mansion. But all plot holes aside, uh, that ultimately serves a great end because then at the end, there's this big, uh, big battle of, uh, you know, Peter versus Sandman and Venom at the same time. And then Harry shows up and teams up with Spider-Man. And it's so cool. Uh, you see them sync up their moves and Harry's on his glider as the new goblin, you know, and he's just a total good guy. So you see the value of forgiveness there. I mean, they're talking overtly about Peter's need to forgive, not just Sandman uh, for being part of the, uh, the two man crime uh, gang that killed his uh, uncle Ben. But you see Peter's need to forgive Harry and Harry's need to forgive Peter. And it's just, it's all about forgiveness. And it's, it's that part of the movie is beautiful is absolutely beautiful but it's also challenging because then you've got still got this villain uh, venom who isn't as much into the whole forgiveness thing he just wants to destroy peter and of course by the way zach you mentioned the need to protect others from evil um when you're a villain in a spider-man movie and you want to get at spider-man what do you do you kidnap spider-man's girlfriend you kidnap yeah. mary jane yeah it's what you do it's your job uh, and Peter's job is to save her falling off of stuff. It's, uh, it's his job as Spider-Man. But Peter's not just trying to save Mary Jane and protect her. At the same time, and this makes the story more interesting, he's trying to save the villain. And this is an act of, if not respect, uh, love. A good hero will do this. And it will, by the way, make the story a lot more interesting and complicated. Uh, at, to the very end, uh, Peter is trying to separate Eddie from the Venom suit, and he flashes back to that scene in the church bell tower when the bell sound itself weakened the suit when it was clinging to Peter. So Peter, this is a big construction tower. It's an epic scene, and I'm going to try to include a link in the show notes to the YouTube video. Uh, Spider-Man grabs up all these metal bars and just pins them all around Venom and just in a circle. And by the way, the cinematography here is just awesome. Way to go, Sam Raimi. And then you just see Spider-Man, like the camera starts circling and you see he picks up this one pipe and then just starts clanging at these vertical pipes stabbed in the cement. And the sound separates Eddie from the Venom, from the symbiote. Uh, Peter manages to web him out of there and then gets a hold of one of the Green Goblin's bombs and throws it in to destroy the suit. And then... Obviously, we're in big spoiler territory here. Eddie pulls his whole no moment and he hurls himself into this prison and is destroyed. He cannot separate himself from the evil. Peter has done all that he can, but it's almost a more horror version of a Disney ending where, you know, the, the villain falls to his own death. He's hoisted on his own petard. As I like to say, the story itself comes in for uh, the avengement. Uh, Venom cannot be separated from Eddie. Eddie must hold on to his sin and he destroys himself. The evil needed to be destroyed, but he could not separate himself from it. So ultimately he's, he's destroyed by his own craving for this wicked power. Uh, he is an enemy. He refuses to be saved. And as a result, Peter Parker has found a way to save his people, uh, except for, um, 
Harry Osborne who who gets that kind of poetic justice death. It, it is genuinely sad, and that's the way the trilogy ends. And I hope we get a Spider-Man four someday. It's more plausible now, thanks to Spider-Man No Way Home. Peter's found a way to save the city. He saved his people, except for Harry, and he's tried and failed to save his enemy. Uh, I would think that it's more of a failure there than even Luke Skywalker with Darth Vader, because Darth Vader repented mm. by the end. Eddie does not. In uh, Christian parlance, he dies in his sins, and he goes to supervillain hell, presumably, uh, to suffer further. Uh, and that's uh, that's where we get a little more sobering here, folks, because <laughs> there's just you know, even though Peter didn't kill him, you know, as an act of vengeance, uh, Venom still died. Uh, and sometimes you can love the enemy all that you like as a Christian, and yet they are determined to destroy themselves. Are you going to let them destroy you and the ones you, that, that you love on the way? Or are there other choices we need to make depending on the scenario? Yep. You got sometimes you gotta love the sinner, hate the symbiote. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot improve on that. That one needs to go into the clip reel for sure. <laughs> uh are you ready to switch universes, Zach? Uh, jumping from Marvel to the uh, to the DC universe? Let's do it. We've wanted to talk about General Zod for quite some time. Uh, because I know Zach wasn't quite sold yep. as uh, on Batman v Superman as I was. Or, or maybe even Zack Snyder's Justice League, but we both enjoy Man of Steel, uh, the last solo yeah. Superman movie we got in 2013. Warner Bros. Discovery, your CEO, David Zaslav, has already said that it's absurd we don't have more Superman emphasis at the company's major motion pictures. Put some money behind that, get on it, and by the way, restore the Snyderverse. But that's not what we're talking about now. We're talking about Superman versus General Zod, who's the enemy of he's, Man of Steel. He's the best villain uh, he's my favorite villain. <laughs> so, so why, why Zach? Why, before I get into it, why why do you like General Zod or love to hate General Zod? Like, why is he a good villain to you? So I, I wrote an article about this for Lorehaven a few years ago, which we will include to. that link in the show notes. Yes, yes. I I think he is the closest villain to how people actually are. So I wrote an article how God uses story villains for our good. Well, there, there's a lot you can read there, but to invoke uh, something Tim Keller has said. General Zod took a good thing and turned it into an ultimate thing. Mm, mm. And I think that is always the path to villainy. He loved the Kryptonian people as he should. He was born and bred and genetically engineered, whatever to protect them and to, you know, further their existence in the universe. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But the problem is he made that an ultimate thing and he, and he, he was willing to sacrifice everything and everyone else for that goal. And that's when it, that's when he became a villain, but it really shows how your love of something can turn into a, uh, sort of a toxic love that can destroy everything else. Absolutely. I, I think that's what critics mean when they accuse some Christians of being nationalists. I will dare to go here. And in that sense, I mean, there's, there's a slanderous, uh, Meaning behind that term, love of country and a desire to defend country does not make you an evil nationalist. But in this case, General Zod is a Kryptonian nationalist, like in the wrong yeah, way. Right. And, and he's, a, so he's a supremacist. That's yeah, oh, problem. absolutely. He's a Kryptonian supremacist. You know what, what? I mean, sure, Krypton's gone, but we're on Earth. And, you know, the, the purpose for which I was born is the survival of my people. He gives this monologue at the end right before the biggest biggest fight uh, between him and Superman. Uh, but I'm, I'm skipping ahead. Uh, we're waiting for Superman to return, but uh, back here in his own story, uh, General Zod is a, a kind of like um, Peter Parker versus Venom and Luke versus Darth Vader is somewhat of a darker reflection of our hero. 
Uh, he's obviously also a survivor of Krypton. Uh, he is dressed in, uh, at least in some scenes, uh, he's dressed in the Kryptonian uh, undergarment, uh, which is uh, black. By the way, Superman later on also gets a black suit and he wears it a lot better. But in this case, General Zod uh, is not so much, you know, oh, no, uh, you know, Kal-El, uh, Superman could become like him someday. Uh, he's more of a haunting figure from the past that Kal-El has never known. Uh, Krypton has exploded long before Kal-El was uh, ever able to pay attention to that. He was still a baby and General Zod was an adult. Uh, General Zod escaped because he was a revolutionary. He was rebelling against the Kryptonian Council. And they locked him up in the Phantom Zone. General Zod gets out and he starts trying to resume the reason for which he was born, the preservation of the Kryptonian people. So it's not so much that Kal-El is under threat of becoming like Zod. They're more traditional enemies. There's an ideological distance between them. And their goals for Earth are irreconcilable. Superman has been raised on Earth. He is basically an Earthling. General Zod is an alien behaving like an alien. Uh, it's always been interesting to view Superman as an immigrant uh, in a culture that he was not originally born in, who then adopts the values of that culture, whether it's truth, justice in the American way or the modern version, truth, justice and a better tomorrow, which I don't hate. He is the man of tomorrow. <laughs> I understand like, just posing beside an American flag and a dadgum eagle every once in a while. You know, he still comes from Kansas. And as he says at the end of Man of Steel, he is as American as it gets. So. Superman, at least in Zack Snyder's universe, owns the American identity. There are flags and soldiers and everything. Uh, he is a patriot, but he also cares for his world. And so he fights to save his world. He is fighting to save his people. There's that conflict again. How do you save your people and save the villain if it's at all possible? In the first big battle, what do you know? There's another woman at risk. Uh, the enemy, General Zod, has touched down looking for the Codex, a secret code from Krypton that will help him to restore uh, that uh, that race of aliens. And he comes after the spaceship in the uh, the Kent family's barn, and he's interrogating Martha Kent, Superman's mom. There it is again. You do not go after the hero's sister. You do not go after the hero's girlfriend. You do not go after the hero's mom. And I love the scene where uh, Superman, who's in his super suit and everything, he's started to understand who he is, and he just horizontally plummets into the scene. And he just slams into General Zod and just starts beating the crap out of him. You think you can threaten my mother? And it's super intense and the Hans Zimmer score is blaring and, you know, suddenly there are you know, grain silos exploding and, you know, it's bombastic. It's a superhero movie, but at heart is this, is this very personal conflict. Zod has come after Superman's family. He has come after his people. And at the, in that sense, like, I don't know if you, you can't even really start to think about how you need to love your enemy because you must prioritize people there. If your enemy is coming after your loved one, everyone, everyone uh, is going to defend their family first. Uh, if you are ignoring the needs of your family in order to try to love the enemy, then I think you have become disordered. Uh, your morality is askew. You are from the negative universe. Uh, you need to get your priorities straight. So even Christ, the scripture says, uh, died to come first for the Jews and then the Gentiles. Uh, Christians can debate about what they what that means, but there is a sense of priority there. Uh, Superman, by the way, uh, first fights to save Smallville, the city where he grew up. And then I find it interesting that uh, later on in the movie, he fights to save Metropolis, which is a city he doesn't even know. He doesn't work there yet. He's not a journalist at the Daily Planet. 
And this is the part where General Zod finds new powers. Uh, he's a trained soldier, whereas uh, Clark Kent grew up on a farm. Uh, and suddenly the battle becomes much more one-sided, and there's no way uh, for Superman to win, uh, much less try to find a way to love his enemy. And that's where things get even more complicated than the previous two battles we've talked about. So there's a lot of critique about the scene that it's basically just a rehash of The Matrix Reloaded, uh, where... I'll take no, your word the, for it because I haven't seen Matrix, it. Matrix Revolutions. Okay, well, I won't spoil it. You can go ahead and spoil it. I'm spoiling Man of Steel for everybody. <laughs> yeah, there's a you know good versus evil battle in the third Matrix movie that uh, this one seems sort of based on just this big aerial punching battle. So the, the first thing I thought when I saw it was, okay, this is sort of a rehash. But the interesting thing is how, and I kind of appreciate they did this, that the the battle within a city is really messy. Like it is not fun. It it's not you know ha ha. Oh look at that big building fall over. Yeah, it's traumatic. <laughs> There's absolutely a cost to it, which I do appreciate in Batman versus Superman the Explore, because in um in the first Avengers movie, I mean, good grief, New York is getting blown up left and right, and and even when the good guys are trying to save New York, they're still like. Sma- like Hulk especially is smashing everything and there doesn't ever seem to be a consequence to that in Man of Steel it seems like hey it actually matters that people are getting hurt um, and their homes are getting destroyed not that I again not that I want to see that happen but I, I appreciate that they're the honesty about that I guess but yes then there is the final moment of General Zod's life that not a lot of people like but I, I actually liked it I didn't like it at first, but then I fought to understand it. Like, I, I think that I felt that it was necessary, but I, I still w- was stuck, you know, on the Christopher Reeve Superman of people's idyllic youth. Superman never kills, like, which is hilarious because Christopher Reeve Superman did kill at the end of Superman 2. He absolutely did. All three Kryptonians, boom, gone. Uh, in this case, Man of Steel is actually more serious about the life of General Zod uh, than even uh, the Superman 2 movie uh, from the early 80s with Christopher Reeve. So to set this up, if you haven't seen Man of Steel or haven't seen it in a while, as you mentioned, Zach, there's this big aerial battle, lots of special effects. You know, it's still developing the fight, you know, it's still developing these characters and showing that Superman is basically outmatched even after the world engine has been pulled into the Phantom Zone. Only General Zod is left and they fight and fight and fight and fight and fight and they level the city and they make unavoidable damage it's a no it's a no-win scenario there's no way that you can stop this monster superman lifts himself from the earth after zod's monologue i mentioned earlier and he realizes he and he says you're a monster zod and i'm going to stop you just very basic you know comic book dialogue there you know this sets up the giant fight like stop zod at any cost because he's going to ravage the earth otherwise that already is an unwinnable scenario you've got this indestructible person who's better trained even though he just discovered his powers uh, he's going to defeat superman and eventually they crash down into uh, this uh, union station type building it uh, looks like a kind of a public transportation type place and uh, superman gets general zod in a headlock and general zod turns his laser vision atop this one family and pins them to a corner and this is where all the fans get really annoyed. And they're like, there had to have been some other way. There has to. It's the rules. You, you've got to, you know, maybe you don't love your enemy by getting him saved according to the, uh, the world's moral rules. But, you, you know, you love your enemy at least bare minimum by not killing him, right? Like, those are the rules. Good heroes don't kill. 
So why couldn't Superman have just flown away? Why couldn't Superman have just covered his eyes? Why couldn't Superman have just taken off and flown really fast and turned back time? I love the first Superman movie, but that's a cop out. <laughs> There's no consequences, and it's a power Superman does not traditionally have. Also, not how orbital mechanics. That's not were. well. The idea was, by the way, that he was flying so fast that he went back in time. He wasn't actually, you know, the, the spinning of the Earth was a was a result, uh, not no. primarily what he was doing. It wasn't. He's he's turning. He's he's reversing the planet's rotation so that it goes back in time. He's going back in time so that it reverses the planet's rotation. I think okay. I remember that that was the theory there. Anyway, this Superman doesn't do that. That's a Flash thing. <laughs> it's a Flash thing that Superman stole in Donner's uh, original movie. Oh, so yeah. the idea, the idea being here being the point of the story is to set up a no-win scenario, and this is reality. And that was the conceit of Man of Steel and some of the movies afterwards. These are Kryptonians in the real world that just happens to have metahumans. And so the point of the story is to challenge us. It's almost like uh, borrowing from Star Trek. It's the Kobayashi Maru simulator in Wrath of Khan. The purpose of this exercise is to demonstrate a no-win scenario and thereby to provoke character development among Starfleet officers. Of course, Kirk hacks the simulation and, you know, because Kirk's supposed to be more awesome than that sort of thing. But frankly, wisdom calls for understanding that there are some no-win scenarios where you have to do something drastic, even if you're Superman. And this scenario is meant to challenge us about those. Uh, I would point out that before the infamous moment where, spoiler alert, Superman is forced to kill Zod by snapping his neck, Zod has turned his heat vision onto this innocent family. Debris is crumbling and Superman has him barely controlled. And Superman is screaming at him, don't stop, please. And you hear the anguish in his voice. He doesn't want to do something drastic. Zod then says, never. And you realize this is an enemy that will not stop. He will never stop. We've already destroyed most of the city to try to stop him without killing him. And then you see Superman close his eyes and he makes his decision. He's, he's for all we know, he's never had to kill a person. You know, we, uh, there was apparently, um, we may include it in the show notes that the writer of the movie was explaining the scene. And he said that for a while there, they had scripted a scene where the young Clark goes hunting with his father and they have themselves a conversation about what it feels like to have to take a life. Well, in that moment, you see how it feels like for Superman to take a life. He has to kill his enemy. When Zod said never, he sealed his own doom. And in that case, Superman, by I believe all the principles of just war developed by Christian theologians, was a, uh, a, a necessary combatant in that conflict. He was in the right place at the right time. He was the only one who could do it to save his people. He could no longer love his enemy. He had to kill his enemy. That's the very hard ending I mentioned earlier. And I don't mean that Christians have to kill their enemies in a culture conflict. God forbid that is not our job. But that does mean that there may, I don't know, there may be some drastic things at least we need to say and maybe some hard choices that we need to make that sometimes the love runs out for the enemy and, and the enemy must be defeated either by the story stepping in, maybe the legal system or maybe just God's vengeance. Uh, like Venom died by his own hand and Vader died as a consequence of his previous actions. Like the story took care of that, but here there was no one to take care of that <laughs> in Man of Steel. Superman himself had to do that. Dark world, dark choices, and sometimes some very difficult conversations we may need to have about what it means to love our enemies when our enemies are never going to stop and must in some way be destroyed. For Zod, in a, in a sense, he's still taking his own life. 
uh, or at least it's a suicide actions. by cop. Yeah. It's suicide by Superman. Yeah. Because Superman gives him a choice. He says, stop. And Zod says, never. And a lot of people do not, a lot of people miss that. They, you know, yeah. they, oh, put, put his hands over his eyes. Like we already know that's going to injure Superman. And then he's just going to kill the family anyway. Fly up into space. You'll just be back to do it again in another repeat version. We've already flown into space yeah. and smashed the satellite. It's not going to work. Right. Yeah, because again, Zod is a supremacist. He's turned a good thing into an ultimate thing. But also, I think what, and this is what I wrote about uh, a couple years ago, is that uh, Zod's core belief is that the ends justify the means. And so anything is on the table in terms of achieving his goal of starting a new Krypton. And, and because he does that, again, he's never going to stop. And he's, he's willing to kill anyone. I think what Zod actually encapsulates is this kind of attitude that I've seen in people where they, they love humanity, but they don't actually like people. They, yeah. they, they, they're nasty towards individual people, but, oh, I love humanity. And boy, that, that is absolutely, I'm going to name this, that is absolutely the spirit behind all of the Marxist movements of the 20th century, where they claim to love the common man, but you see all the death and destruction they've left in their wake. Um, all the gulags and, you know, everything, all the mass death that that movement has caused. And uh, I, I can't believe here we are in 2022. And it's even controversial to say that, that communism and Marxism should be in the dustbin of history, along with Nazism and other, other things like that. But here we are. This is the putting things in the wrong order. Whereas Superman put Smallville first. He put his, actually put his family first, then Smallville, then Metropolis. That's the right order. You know, Zod really just kind of loved himself uh, because he said, you know, I was made for this or I was bred or whatever. I was created for this. And so it's really just narcissism more than anything else is that he loved his role in the restoration of Krypton, probably more than even loved Krypton or Kryptonians because he didn't seem all that loving towards uh, his fellow Kryptonians. That's that right. The ship. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a really good point. He demonstrates very little concern for their lives, uh, the lives of his own men, uh, his own soldiers, other members of his uh, rebellion movement uh, brought forward in time from the past. And he certainly demonstrates no love for Superman uh, once he finds out that Superman's not going to go along with his Kryptonian restoration project. That's why Christians have debated just war. And there's very little consensus about that uh, the idea of okay like seeing as how christians do live in the world we are not just missionaries in the world we also have jobs as protectors of our families we have jobs as citizens we have jobs of uh, earning uh, earning a living uh, cultivating the earth making stuff using god's stuff we are constantly wearing these multiple different hats it's complicated it is not so easy as just 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 talk about the gospel just talk about jesus and you know try to live uh, try to love your enemies like love takes many different forms based on who your enemy is and what they're trying to do uh you can't stop with the i i do call that a sentimentalism uh, zach and I've, I've previously applied this to stories like I mean, there's some branding issues with what we would call christian fiction people say well these stories are not realistic you know they are they're 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 softening the uh, hard points of our world. Uh, they're constantly oversimplifying things and making them shallow. Um, 
I think that this is a little part of that. Uh, it's looking at the world and trying to reduce everything to something easier. Now, I understand needing to reduce things to uh, an easy version of them if we are tired, <laughs> if we have a lot going on, uh, or if we just don't have the experience or wisdom to deal with these issues. But if you're going to try to speak into these issues, you got to do the homework. And the homework involves, I think, not just uh, understanding the complexities of these things through fictional stories. Uh, it involves going back to the Bible and then also going back to previous Christian arguments about these things. How do you love your enemy when your enemy is literally trying to destroy you? And an important point here, the enemy trying to destroy you contrary to the law of your land. That's why I think the Apostle Paul could stand up for his rights and appeal his case. But once it got all the way up to Caesar, okay, that's it. You know, the top most earthly authority now wants you to be imprisoned and or die. Then you go into persecution mode. Like, okay, this is persecution. I'm going to have my property plundered. Uh, Caesar's not going to help. Uh, I've exhausted all possible legal avenues. There's nothing I can do. Let's go into persecution mode. I think some people, at least in theory, are willing to go into persecution mode way too quickly. There are other things you can do. You have rights as a citizen and you have obligations to protect your family that you must follow in order to be a public witness for Christ to your family. You need to reflect Christ's mercy and protectiveness to them before you're doing it to your enemy. Otherwise, I think you violate the First Timothy 3 commandment uh, that a church elder and uh, by proxy any other uh, husband, at least, uh, who has a family needs to protect his family or else how should we expect him to protect the church? There's an order of priority there, uh, just like you mentioned, Zach. And that's why I think we need complex stories like Star Wars, like Spider-Man 3, and even like Man of Steel to help us wrestle with these. You can love your enemy, Darth Vader, and he ends up being redeemed and dying anyway. You can try to love your enemy like Peter Parker, uh, and Venom ends up not being redeemed and dying by his own hand. Or you can try to love your enemy like Superman, who ends up not being redeemed and having to be destroyed by Superman. That's where it gets complicated. And like I said, that's kind of the really, really dark ending that we expected here uh, once we were setting up the episode earlier. I'm thinking about all this in our, in our modern context here, outside of the movie theater, outside of the novels, and in our daily lives. I think one of the most important ways we can love our enemies now is by telling the truth. Amen. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love rejoices in the truth. You know, it finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. We're living in an age with all kinds of uh, propaganda and all kinds of confusion. And the last thing we should do is, is sort of play hide the ball with biblical truth and have this attitude of, oh, well, we just have to love people and accept them and tolerate them and bring them in. And then we'll tell them everything. Well, I, I'd say this with... <laughs> as gently as I can, but that is what cults do. Cults love bomb people. That's a good point. Get them into the compound and then say, oh, let me tell you the actual scriptures of our, you know, cults. Let me tell you our actual sacred writings. Let me tell you all the really weird things and hard things that we believe and all the sacrifices you're going to have to make. You know, Jesus said, count the cost, which assumes that people can know the cost of being a disciple. He said, Pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. We have to be honest with people about what the Christian life is and not just try to hoodwink them and, and trick them into becoming Christians and then tell them everything. 
we have that means we have to confront people in their sin. Jesus did this also to the rich young ruler. He said, he, he said basically, how do you think someone gets into heaven, right? And the guy's like, well, I followed all these commandments. And Jesus is like, well, you haven't followed all of them. And he confronts him in his own greed by because the guy does not want to sell everything he has. Um, now, that's not the prerequisite for everyone to get saved. But the point is that Jesus confronted people in their own sins. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to confront someone in their sin and oppose their their own evil for their own good. And I think that's what Spider-Man did with Venom, is he tried to get the symbiote away from him. He, he wasn't trying to kill Eddie. He was trying to kill the symbiote. <laughs> Love the sinner, hate the symbiote. It was you know, unfortunate that Eddie decided to, to die with it, that he didn't want to live without it. I mean, Spider-Man couldn't control that. That, that is a tragic end to Eddie's story. And sometimes people will love their own sin. And that's, again, that's Romans 1. Um, people hate the light because they love darkness. O- along with this, we can't throw fellow Christians under the bus ever. Like we can't be so winsome that we're partial to the world and we're slanderous almost towards other Christians. Jesus said we have to love one another the most. Um, he said that the way that people know that I am the Messiah is when Christians love one another. And that it's easy to love the people that are like you, but you, we have to love the people that are different than us. That's a really great point. Uh, to go back to the Spider-Man example, if Spider-Man had been fighting to save Venom as equally as he was fighting to save Mary Jane, we would not like him. We would hate him even worse uh, than we did uh, when he was doing the weird dancing and the finger guns and uh, just being a, a general issue cad. We want a hero to fight to save his girlfriend, even though she herself has her issues, many of them. We know by the rules of honor, uh, to say nothing of the scripture, that the hero needs to fight to save the one closest to him first. And after that, yes, try to save the enemy, try to pull him out of the, uh, the symbiote, but there may not always be a way to do that. This stuff gets complicated, so you may have some thoughts about that, oh, gentle listener, uh, even with the darker ending of this podcast. So stay tuned. We'll tell you how to feedback. Uh, give us your thoughts about loving the enemies in your lives, uh, whether or not they're just a really annoying person or someone who's actively trying to destroy you in some way. How do we do that? We want to hear about your experiences and how you look at this issue, both in the uh, fictional examples and the real-world examples. From there, let's go to our uh, comm station. Uh, Zach, I mentioned earlier, I'd try to share a few stories of my uh, travel to the Teach Them Diligently conference in Pigeon Forge. First, thank you so much to you and Naomi for uh, holding down the fort uh, in my absence. Uh, I thought Naomi did a great job. It was great to hear from her. It was perfect to bring her in uh, for that topic in particular. And I hope we'll get to readdress the topic of how to find great, fantastical stories for your kids. And I think she may be surprised to learn that I'm actually kind of on her side when it comes to a, a bit of an aversion to, uh, to fantasy, at least when it's labeled like that. Like, no, I'm not against fantasy, but I do tend in my personal preferences to go more in the direction of the books she mentioned as her favorites, like this present darkness. Like I like fantastical stories that deal in some way with the challenges of the real world. Uh, even if they're using uh, kind of the imagination that Peretti did to, ask, well, what if it was like this? You know, what if uh, the real stuff is going on over here? You know, somebody's trying to buy a college, uh, but then behind the scenes, there's these uh, angelic warriors uh, duking it out with the demons. Like, I like that balance of the fantastical and the real. 
that's why I like making fantastical stories, but I like going to the real world to talk about them. And that's what I did at the conference. Uh, Y'all heard my, uh, an earlier version of my presentation that I did. Uh, why do your kids need fantastical stories for God's glory? Got lots of great feedback afterwards. Uh, people coming down to the Realm Makers uh, bookstore booth in the vendor hall. We had some great conversations, uh, not just about Christian-made fantasy, uh, but also about how to discern popular culture. I was glad that uh, our book, The Pop Culture Parent, has a chapter in there about Fortnite and some of the common graces and idols in that popular video game franchise. And uh, at least two parents were asking me about that. Uh, I met a couple, too, who, um, my favorite conversations, uh, they were asking me about fantasy and magic and imagination in general, because one of them was into it and understood it and liked uh, fantastical stories. And the other half of the couple uh, had been raised uh, to like more literal stories and nonfiction or even to suspect fantasy of having some kind of spiritual problem. But they were both trying to work through that and come to a consensus based on scripture so they could raise their kids right, you know, and then synchronize their messages and their beliefs on this, you know, whichever way they went uh, so that they could do right by their family. And I think that that's just wonderful. That That is absolutely wonderful to see people taking this seriously and understanding the stories have power. Uh, they're not just a little bonus feature in life. Uh, it matters how you react to imagination and it matters what associations you have with things like fictional magic. And it is worth going through these issues, going back to Deuteronomy 18 and other biblical texts about imagination and the occult and the very real risks of idols in these stories. I just love it that people are talking about these issues and they were at the, at the Pigeon Forge booth just swarming the place. We had a giant booth thanks to Scott and Rebecca P. Minor. Uh, lots of authors there as we talked about. Lots of people loving these stories, sharing them, hearing about them, getting signatures from authors. Uh, it's just a lot of fun and I look forward to doing that again at the uh, Orlando, Florida conference uh, later this month of May. Well, over here at our comm station, we've got a message from Abigail, who commented on Stephen's article uh, about Spider-Man, how Spider-Man saved my marriage before it even began. Abigail says, quote, a worthy celebration of the legacy and lessons of the Spider-Man films. They are still excellent, though flawed, of course, and it's nice to take time to remember the deeper reasons why, end quote. Yes, uh, I agree. There's, there's still a lot I think about. Those movies came out first when I was in college. It was 20 and years so, ago this month. That's, yeah. that's why I wrote the article. So, yeah, it definitely came out in a pretty impressionable time for me when I was um, uh, thinking a lot about how stories, you know, relate to biblical truth. And then we got another message from one of our heroes in the Lorehaven Guild. Uh, this hero listened to episode 110 about a golden age of Christian fiction and says, quote, rather than following a timeline like Stone Age to Bronze Age to Iron Age, Literary genres usually proceed from a golden age in the past to a silver age resurgence. Hmm. Science fiction went from there to a new wave period to a punk period, and new traditionalists seem to rise up as often in science fiction as they do in country music. Okay. Uh, writers usually write what they like to read, and I agree with Stephen that supply is exceeding demand at this stage. I regularly participate in a general audience science fiction book club as well. And I have to think about things like my time and financial budgets End quote. Yes. And I, I think a lot of this is uh, very particular to us at our, our ages of, you know, I, I don't know how old this hero is, but um, any of us that are adults 
uh, grownups, uh, parents right now, grandparents, maybe. Yes, we probably have a lot less time to read than uh, some of the homeschool kids that we've talked about recently. And so we have to be a little bit choosier. And that is tough because there is quite a supply of Christian fantasy. So where do you start? And that is very much what we uh, hope you'll do, dear listeners. Sign up to lorehaven.com, get our reviews that come out each week, get our articles, um, find our whole library now of over 100, 200 books, I think, that we've reviewed or posted. And find us on social media. Just look for Lorehaven and find the books that we're talking about and join us on a book quest where we get to all explore a book together. You can also subscribe to this podcast. Remember to rank us good and high on your podcast platform. And if you're so inclined, write a review. Uh, We've been getting more listeners this year to Fantastical Truth. We'd love to hear what you think about us, including any areas for potential improvement. But of course, your reviews and rankings help other potential listeners find this podcast. Next on Fantastical Truth, after a heavy topic like that, uh, we might feel ready for some lighter fare. So once again, our next episode will be multiple choice. It will either be A, a guest appearance related to the Florida conference coming up, or B, perhaps some pro tips about how to build your personal reading library with physical bookshelves, maybe even some checkout policies and the works. Zach has been really getting into this, uh, building his own library of books. And I would love to hear what he's found and what are some practical tips uh, that you can use to develop such a library of your own. Meanwhile, we all have enemies. And yet, in some way, and in fact, in all the ways, each of us is an enemy. That's a truth from Scripture that we cannot forget. That although we all have enemies, each of us is an enemy to Christ Jesus. We were dead in our transgressions and sins worse than enemies, rebelling against our creator. And yet Christ himself loved us anyway. He came to save his people from their sin. He gets to pull us out of the venom suit. He will destroy the sin. We do experience the consequence of physical death, but then we get to look forward to being not enemies of Christ and not just friends, but adopted sons and daughters of Christ Jesus. That is the future that we get to look forward to thanks to his love for his enemies as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.